I know it's going to be a good day when I get up here and I have goosebumps and we haven't even gotten started yet. If you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3, we're going to finish this series on foundations. We spent seven weeks looking at God's blueprint for how life is supposed to work. How does our identity work? How does gender work? How does existence work? How does purpose and value, all these things, God has a plan and it's revealed in the first two chapters of the Bible. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw God's blueprint for the foundational issues for life. And then last week, we saw that foundational problem. The problem that underlies all other problems is the sin problem. And in Genesis chapter 3, last week, as we looked at the fall of man, we noticed and we saw that the, the man's greatest problem is, is sin because it breaks, it distorts, it perverts, it destroys. That Satan isn't very good at coming up with his own stuff, but he's really good at tempting us and taking things that God created for good and twisting them and distorting them and perverting them and destroying them. And that's what sin has always been up to. We saw last week that underneath all of the other issues and problems and craziness in our world are sin issues. And so we finish the series today by saying this, if our most foundational problem is sin, then our most foundational need is not self-help. It's not self-actualization. It's not self-betterment. We're already pretty good as people at doing those things. If our foundational problem is a sin problem, our foundational need is a salvation need. And we're going to talk today about salvation. And I love how these three songs that we just sang point our hearts in that direction. And we're going to do something a little bit different today. I'm just going to warn you. I've got 16 different verses. They're all, almost all of them are on the PowerPoint because we're going to just walk through all of them. We've zoned in on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And today we're going to zoom that camera out. And we're going to look at salvation. And we're going to start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But we're going to take it all the way through the Bible. We're actually going to cover the entire Bible in one sermon. And some of you are like, it takes them an hour to do three, four verses. But we're going to trace salvation through all of Scripture because I want you to see what God has always been up to and what he continues to be up to even today on into eternity. And I want you to see what all the Bible says about that idea of salvation. And it does start in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and we'll look at that verse. But uh, some of you are going to be real excited this morning because I am going way old school. I talked to one of my buddies who preaches as well. I said, we're going old school today. Three-point outline, alliterated, all with the letter P. Right? Some of you guys, Jim is a pastor. He just got excited. Forrest Bushing, these guys are pumped. They got their notepads out. Sometimes it just works that way. I didn't plan it. It just works that way. But I want you to see from, from the beginning of history to the end of history how salvation plays out. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we're going to see the first of those letter P things. Salvation is promised. Throughout all of the Old Testament, we see how salvation is promised. Genesis 3.15 says it this way. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If you don't like snakes, some of you don't like snakes, raise your hand, be proud, okay? That's good. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Snakes are evil. I covered that last week. Here's your verse. Some commentators actually think that this, this verse only relates to people's dislike of snakes. I actually read that in a couple different commentators this week. 
This verse in uh, Christian tradition has been called another word that starts with the letter P. So I'll throw it out there since we're just going with all these words. It's the proto-evangelium, right? The first announcement of the gospel, the proto, the pre-evangel, the pre-gospel. And most traditional Bible scholars and commentators say that this is the first time that salvation is foreshadowed in the entire Bible. And why is that so important? It's so important because this is the first place that sin shows up. So the need for salvation is there. And so Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God looks at the serpent and he's cursing the serpent, Satan. He doesn't just say, you're going to crawl on your belly and eat dust. He says that. He's not just cursing that particular animal. But he's actually talking about more and he's giving hope that's there. So right at the beginning... Genesis 1 and 2, God creates and says this is good. Genesis 3, man makes a choice and sin enters and perverts and disrupts and destroys. Right at the beginning, we see salvation being promised. And God is saying, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. And if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, as you walk through the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters kind of talk about history from a big perspective. And then chapter 12 and following is really one family. And in Genesis chapter, I think it's 5, 6, 7, uh, maybe even chapter 4, as you, you think about um, the Tower of Babel, then you think about Noah, and some of the things that happened in those instances where evil just showed up and showed up and showed up. Woven throughout the Genesis narrative is the idea of salvation. And then God uh, calls a man to himself named Abram. And he creates out of Abram, later giving him the name Abraham, he creates a people, the nation of Israel, for himself. And then we have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And the Joseph narrative in Genesis 37 through 50 have places where we see salvation promised ahead of time. But if you fast forward to the book of Exodus is where we'll go next. The book of Exodus, you realize that several hundred years had passed. And one of the things that had happened is that the people of God had been taken captive into a land that was not the land that God had for him, them. And those people are being enslaved and being held captive. And God comes to a man named Moses and he says, you're going to deliver my people. You're going to save my people out of where they were into where I want them to be. And you remember the story. If you've been in Sunday school, you probably see the flannel graphs coming back to your mind right now, right? The different plagues. And Moses and Aaron go and they, God uses all of these different plagues. By the way, those plagues were really important to show not just something cool on flannel graph in Sunday school, but they actually were intended to show specifically how God was greater than the gods of Egypt. And if you look at the different plagues and the ones that were able to be, uh, that, that um, the Egyptian uh, people were, were able to replicate, in those instances, there are some spots, again, where God is showing his power over the false gods. But then as those move forward, you realize that God is more powerful than the false gods of the Egyptians, and that's what that's meant to show. But if you remember that very last plague, God comes to the people and he says this in Exodus chapter 12, verse 13. He told them to take a lamb and to slaughter the lamb, to have a meal, and to take the blood from that spotless lamb and to put it on their doorpost. And here's why. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. 
And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And this is the institution of what many Orthodox Jews today still celebrate, and it's called the Passover. That the Passover was a direct foreshadowing of a salvation that was to come. That it was a salvation for right then, but it was promising a much greater salvation. And when you read about the Passover lamb in Exodus, and then you go to the book of Hebrews, and and the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the greater Passover lamb, there's a direct correlation. See, God was up to something, even in the moments of the Exodus, in providing that salvation. Then we're going to fast forward, man, because you could look at the, the nation of Israel. You could look at the Exodus account and the conquest of the land of Canaan. You could look at the book of Judges. You could look at the, the united monarchy with David, Saul, David, and Solomon, the divided monarchy with all the craziness that went on there. And you could, again, see, as I think it is Spurgeon, I don't remember, but one of the, the great old preachers talked about the scarlet thread of the gospel that's woven through the entire New Testament. And you can follow that, and you can see that. But I want us to fast forward to a time much later in the nation of Israel's history. And that time is the time of the prophets, the the latter prophets. And so at this time, God's people again are are doing things that are wrong. And God has been judging them for it. And through especially the prophet Isaiah. You know, the prophets are those books that are in the back of your Bible, the back of the Old Testament. And and if you're not sure where they're at, I'll I'll just give you a clue. Take your Bible. If you've got a real Bible, you can take your Bible. And and where the pages are still stuck together, remember that? You know what I mean? It's like, oh, yeah, they're pretty good in Genesis because I read that every January. And then uh, they're pretty good in the New Testament because that's all that the preachers ever preach through. But there's all these pages stuck together. Those are called the prophets. They're actually really important. When you go to the prophets, especially the prophet Isaiah, these prophets talk about salvation for God's people. And they talk about salvation from their enemies at that time. But through there, there's again this future salvation that is prophesied. And Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament prophet. And some of the things that he has to say about salvation is really important for us. Now, for some of you, even if you've, you like hardly ever go to church, you're like, I, I've heard this verse before. Because we do it every year at Christmas, right? You're like, oh, that's where I've heard it before. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us, right? And he was saying something more than just that there's going to be a a short-term Savior that's going to save you. And Isaiah's message, I've been reading through Isaiah in my own private uh, devotions this year. And Isaiah's message is incredible because he's talking about the destruction that's going to happen to the nation of Judah because of the things that they have done uh, against God. But then in chapter 40 and following in Isaiah is some of the, I told my girls just the other day, this is some of the most hope-filled scripture in the entire Old Testament. Because he talks about this coming Messiah. So Isaiah is prophesying about a coming salvation. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, he talks specifically about what Jesus will then uh, fulfill in the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 9, 6, and 7, again another Christmas verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's a prophecy 
of a coming Messiah for them. And in that day, God's people, 700 years before the time of Christ when this was written, the people of God were looking forward to a Savior, a Messiah. Unfortunately, they had a bit of a wrong idea about what that Savior would look like. They saw a great military warrior coming in, maybe riding a white horse with a chariot and a great army coming in behind him and saving them from these evil people. And in Isaiah's day, it would have been the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then moving forward, the Romans and the Greeks and then the Romans. And there were always different people that were taking away their freedom. And the people of God were looking forward to the Messiah who would bring them freedom. That's why it's interesting when Isaiah prophesies later here in Isaiah 53. By the way, this is a passage that most Orthodox Jews won't look at, won't read, right? Because it's so clear that what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 53 was fulfilled in Jesus. That you have to just be blind, just close your eyes to see it as anything different. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is one of what Isaiah calls the suffering servant songs. And it's a prophecy, not just for Isaiah's time, but it's a prophecy of one who would be called the Messiah. And we know the name of that Messiah, don't we? Because we have not just the Old Testament, but we have the New Testament as well. And what I love as we think about salvation promised in the Old Testament is over and over and over are these cycles of sin, rejection, rebellion, the people of God choosing idols over the true God. That over and over and over there was rebellion and reason for God to just walk away. And yes, God punished that rebellion. But we always see God's faithfulness in the Old Testament. Whether it was in, again, the time of Genesis or all the way through to the time of the prophets, we see the faithfulness of God, the goodness of God, and salvation promised. But salvation promise doesn't mean a whole lot if it's not delivered, right? And I could use the word delivered, but that doesn't start with a P. Salvation provided. Oh, okay. Uh, how many of you are guessing right now? Let's just go right there. Okay, Roger's guessing. Anybody guessing at the three Ps? It's okay. All right, good. I love it. We used to do that in youth group all the time. And then I click it up there, and they're like, oh, man, <sighs> miss that one. It's all right salvation provided we read the genesis account the account of creation in the old testament what about the creation account in the new testament we should look at that shouldn't we yeah forrest bushing was talking to me a couple weeks ago about this he's like you've got to talk about Gen about john 1 i'm like i'm gonna get there but i gotta save it for the end because it's so good in the beginning was the word now who's the word Jesus, and we'll see that in just a minute. Some of you are like, it just says word. How do we know it's Jesus? You'll see in just a second. And there's a whole Greek philosophy. I'm not going to go into it about what the word was. But here, John applies that idea to the person of Jesus. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus, it says, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. All that stuff that we were reading in Genesis, guess who's there? God the Son. 
right? God the Father is there doing his work. God the Son is there doing his work. God the Holy Spirit is there doing his work. That the Trinitarian God is there and active and present at creation. And if you look at, I think it's Colossians, it talks even more specifically about the role that Christ has in creation. And not only that, but sustaining creation. And it's incredible. What don't you just see here is that Jesus was and is and always will be God the Son. That he was present and active in creation. That when God said in Genesis 3.15, the first verse that we looked at, when God said that he was going to send one, that Jesus was that one. And that's why Genesis, uh, John 1.14 is so important. It's called the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of, from the Father, full of grace and truth. That Jesus was, is, and always will be God. That, that God the Son came into human history, took on human flesh, as Philippians says, became like a servant. That he took on human flesh to become one of us. And why did he do that? So that he could live the life that none of us could live. That he could die the death that every single one of us deserves to die. But that he could be risen again and defeat death and defeat sin and to provide salvation. That the salvation is provided in the person of Jesus. And as a matter of fact, no one else could fulfill that. Because no one else was God made human. No one else lived a perfect life. No one else could die that sacrificial death. That whole sacrificial system that, by the way, in Genesis chapter 3, and I think it's around verse 21, some people believe that when God clothed Adam and Eve in skins, that that's a foreshadowing of a sacrificial system. That whole sacrificial system, that other part of your Bible where the, it's all stuck together, right? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All of that foreshadows Jesus. The Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, is a foreshadowing of Christ dying on the cross as a, as a substitute for our sins. We studied 1 Peter not too long ago. You remember this verse. For he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see that last sentence? I think I've seen that somewhere before. As a matter of fact, I think I saw it just a couple slides ago. By his wounds you have been healed. You're like, are we sure Isaiah was talking about Jesus? Yeah, pretty sure. Like, especially when you read through Peter and you see all the times that he quotes Isaiah. By his wounds you have been healed. Acts 4.12 says it this way. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And in the context, context that name is who? The name is Jesus that name is not, believe whatever you want and all roads lead to heaven. That salvation is provided one way. It's provided in Jesus. Salvation is not provided in your own good works. Salvation is not provided in, again, whatever ideology you want to believe in. Salvation doesn't come from me. Salvation doesn't come from other people. Salvation doesn't come from some prophet in the Old Testament, some priest Salvation comes in Jesus. Salvation also comes through faith. And I want to show you a few verses related to that. John chapter 1 verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he 
gave the right to become children of God, who believed in his name. You see, that's where faith comes into the picture, is that we place our faith, we believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Some verses that you are very familiar with, there's a reason why these are the most popular verses in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then again, Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is provided in Jesus through faith. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart, one believes and is justified. With the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And then verse 13 says it like this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you become a Christian? Becoming a Christian isn't coming to church. Becoming a Christian isn't reading the Bible. Becoming a Christian isn't doing lots of good things. It's not being nice to other people. It should include all those other things. But it's bowing your knee before God and saying, as we've looked at, like, I believe that you have a blueprint, and I believe that my sin has broken that blueprint, has separated me from you, and that the only way back into relationship with you, God, that I was created to have is through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's acknowledging, right, that, that like some of the baggage and the issues and the craziness that I carry around in my life, like I might need counseling, but I need Jesus. Some of you smile when I say I might need counseling. Okay. <laughs> I might need counseling. I might need therapy. I might need other things. But what I need underneath all that, I need Jesus. Because I can get counseling and therapy and pills and potions and all kinds of vacations and money and anything else to try to fix my problems. But if I've not got Jesus, then my real problems aren't going to be fixed. And then I'm just running around trying to medicate surface issues when there's a deep root issue that's at work. So have you trusted Jesus? Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Man, you can do that. You don't even have to wait for like, us to play a song. Like, I know I said it's old school, but we're not going all the way back to like the altar calls and stuff like that. Don't worry, okay? I don't even know if anybody knows how to play just as I am, but, you know, we took the hymnals out of the pews. I almost got fired for that one. Don't laugh. Yeah, but you know what? At the end of the day, you can place your faith in Jesus right here, right now as you're listening. You can confess your sin to God. Say, I'm a sinner, and I admit it, and I believe that Jesus died in my place for my sins. And I want to become a Christian. If that's true of you right now, if you're already a Christian, or you're like, I'm going to do that right now and become a Christian, I want you to know that salvation is provided in Jesus. It's provided through faith. But there's something else really exciting here as well. That it's also provided for life. Check out what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. If anyone is in Christ, if anyone's become a Christian, he is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. A new creation. How many of you like those like remodeling TV shows, right? Love those remodeling TV shows. First of all, because I can't do any of the remodeling, so it's really cool to see how creative other people can be. 
But we all love it when we see something that's like totally destroyed and nasty and it's got all kinds of problems and then it gets fixed and they like move the bus or pull back the screen or do whatever the thing is that they do on that show and it's like oh wow it's amazing if you're a christian scripture says like that's happening in your life all the time right that from a positional standpoint you are now dead to the penalty of sin Like when we go to the end of the book and we read Revelation and you read about hell and you read about eternal separation from God, you're free from that. Amen? You're free from the penalty of sin. We're going to read in a few minutes. You're going to see, like you're free from the presence of sin in the future. There won't be any sin and baggage and craziness. But right now, we are free from the power of sin. Now, we got to act on that, but we're free from the power of sin. That's what 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says. Galatians 2.20 says it like this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a new life and a better life for those of you who are Christians. One of the great things that I get to do as a pastor is hear testimonies of how God has changed people's lives. And many of you, I hear testimonies of what God pulled you out of, And others of you, I hear what God saved you from. And every one of those testimonies is just as powerful as the next. Because it's all about God at work in your heart. God at work in your life. Like if you're a Christian, salvation has been provided so that you can have new life in Christ. You can have freedom from sin. That you can have real life. Did you know there's even better news than that? Because not only has salvation been provided. Let's see, are you ready? Number three. What's it going to be? Raise your hand if you get it right. In the future, we're going to see salvation perfected. Did anybody get that? Come on. Hey, Allie got it. Way to go. Salvation perfected. That's because she knows what we all know if we think about Scripture. Is that if you look at God's word in its entirety, salvation isn't this thing that I did when I was about four or five years old at a vacation Bible school and I asked Jesus into my heart. That salvation was promised in the past. That salvation has been provided right now. But that salvation is continuing and in the future will be perfected. And I like how the Apostle Paul says it in Philippians chapter 1. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on or bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. How many of you are like, oh, I'm good. I am glad that he's not done, right? This remodel project's only about half finished, Right? Some of you are looking at your spouse, looking at your kids, looking at your parents, like, oh, please tell me that's not the outcome. Don't move the bus yet. Like, we got a lot of work left to do. That God is working on us day in and day out through all the different circumstances and all the different things that he brings into our lives. And that he is carrying that work to completion. And he's going to be doing that every day of your life. You guys, I am so glad as a pastor that he's not done working on me yet. My wife, who's in the nursery right now, she'd say amen too if she was here. I promise. Right? Yes. You guys remember that old song, He's Still Working on Me to Make Me What I Ought to Be? I could sing it. I won't. You're welcome. But yeah, like he's still working on us. Then if you take your Bibles, and I'm going to actually have you do this. I want you to take your Bibles and go from the beginning all the way to the end. And I'm making this easy for those of you who, again... uh, Maybe you're not in church or in the Bible a whole lot. First few pages, last few pages. Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22. 
we go from the beginning to the end, and this is like bookends, and I love how this works. One of the things that God says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, he says, Behold, I am making all things new. And there's so much tied into that, and so much that goes into that. But if you're familiar with reading stories, and you read stories to your kids, or different things like that, most stories have a beginning, then they have a middle, and then they have a what? An end, right? And they all lived happily ever after. The Bible's a little bit different than most books. You know why? The Bible has a beginning, and then it has a lot of middle, and then it has a final part. And that final part's not an end, but it's actually a new beginning. That the story of God's word goes beginning, middle, and new beginning. And that's what's outlined in the last three chapters of Revelation. When, when God says, I'm making all things new there at the end, he's talking about those bookends. If you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, which we have, you learn certain things. If you go to Genesis or Revelation 20, 21, and 22, you see some of those very things mirrored. And I want to show you what I mean by that. In Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, we see that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that was in them. He created light out of darkness, that there was darkness, and then God created light. He called the seventh day holy, and as you remember, we talked about that was the day that God took up his reign, that he picked up the scepter and sat on the throne, and he reigned. We see man, mankind, men and women, created to live in relationship with God there in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. There's actually the tree of life, and there's a river there in Genesis. But we see, if you read... We see it move from order to disorder. Genesis 1 and 2, things are ordered the way they're supposed to be. Genesis chapter 3, we see disorder come in. Satan, sin, and death enter the picture. And for the rest of human history, as recorded in God's word, it's a battle, and it's a struggle, and it's a fight, and it's a wrestling match. But I want you to see how Revelation 20, 21, and 22 bookends this story and this is intentional and i need you to remember that the bible that genesis and revelation were written somewhere in the vicinity of 1500 years apart and then when when john the apostle was on that island of patmos and he had been exiled to that island and he was there and the holy spirit is superintending him to write these things down that the book the story ends intentionally that there's a new heaven and a new earth that will never be corrupted that there's no darkness. As a matter of fact, we see that God himself is the light. That it's not just one day holy, but that all is considered holy. That people live in unbroken relationship with God. There's that tree of life that's there, and there's also the river of life that's there to provide the bookends. We've moved from disorder to order. As a matter of fact, if you look at Revelation chapter 20, it says the thousand years and talks about the defeat of Satan and judgment before the great white throne. That's a moving from disorder to order. Satan, sin, death, defeated. And by the time you get to the end of the book, redemption has been completed. This is intentional. This is meaningful. That what this is supposed to show us is that from Genesis to Revelation, God is on the throne. God is ruling and reigning. That there's a beginning and God created. That sin perverted and corrupted and distorted. And we've been dealing with that ever since. But Christian, we have something to look forward to. We have everything to look forward to. That he's making all things new. I want you to look because I just want to read some verses from Je Revelation 21. 
Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. There it is. That relationship that we were created to live in. That's what we were created for, to live in perfect relationship with God. Who made that possible? Did we work our way up to God? Did I somehow do enough in this life to die and find out that now I'm a God as well? No, that God has always been descending to man. He did it in Genesis. He did it in John's gospel. Here in Revelation, that God is always coming down to us. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. That is, again, the thread that runs all throughout Scripture, is God creating a people for himself. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. How many of you have shed a tear because of pain? How many of you, go ahead, raise your hands. You've shed a tear because of pain. Somebody died. Something hurt. There was mourning. There were tears because of that. We all have, because we've all felt the effects of sin in the fall. Can you imagine? No more. Like, as I stand here, I want to, like, say names, and I'm not going to, but I just think of the stories that I hear from different ones of you. I think of some of the reunions that are going to happen in heaven. And I'm not saying this to sensationalize things, but I want you to like wrap your mind around what's coming. Right? Think about the reunions that are coming. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. I know we run around and we talk about politics and we talk about how bad the economy is and like the state of Washington is probably just going to fall into the ocean at some point. Right? Probably the whole West Coast, but that's okay. Like if we're going, you know California and Oregon are going too. Let's just be honest. Right? Uh, but he's making all things new. He's making all things new. Like if you want a life verse, there you go. You want something to look forward to, man. Salvation is being perfected. And for those of us who are Christians... That's what you have to look forward to. If you're not a Christian, unfortunately, you, what you have to look forward to is just a few verses uh, above that in chapter 20, and I'll let you read that on your own. What I do want to say is that every one of us will bow before the Lord. Some of us will bow our knee in worship as Christians, humbly accepting that He is God and that I am not, and bow and worship before him and others will bow in subjection to him you either bow in worship or bow under his wrath that's how it ends revelation chapter 22 several different times says this 22 7 says behold i am coming soon verse 12 behold i am coming soon I am bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha, the, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And the book of Revelation, the Bible, the redemptive story of salvation ends like this. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. 
Amen. <laughs> Come, Lord Jesus, please. Right? Yes, I would much rather be in heaven than be running around here trying to figure out life and know my word. It's almost tax. It is tax season. Right? I would much rather be trying to figure all of that, enjoying heaven than trying to figure all that out. Come, Lord Jesus. And he says, behold, I am coming soon. He's coming soon to deliver those of us who are, who are his people and to gather us as the people of God. But he's also coming soon, as it says, to bring his recompense for those who are not. And I beg you and implore you today, if you're not a Christian, to consider Jesus. To consider Jesus. To become a Christian. Place your faith in Christ. And for those of us who are here today who enjoy that faith in Christ, I want you to know that salvation was promised and he provided that salvation. But I want you to look forward to salvation being perfected. That we're going to live by that blueprint one day. I am so excited. Are you excited for that? I, I hope so. I hope you're excited for that. I sure am. As you know, we've got a sermon supplement. You can check that out online. Uh, use that to think through some of this a little bit more and uh, just some more of the implications.